Chapter nineteen of the Vicar of Wakefield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith. Chapter nineteen. The description of a person discontented with the present government and apprehensive of the loss of our liberties. The house where we were to be entertained, lying at a small distance from the village, our inviter observed that as the coach was not ready, he would conduct us on foot and we soon arrived at one of the most magnificent mansions i had seen in that part of the country the apartment into which we were shown was perfectly elegant and modern he went to give orders for supper while the player with a wink observed that we were perfectly in luck our entertainer soon returned an elegant supper was brought in two or three ladies in an easy deshabille were introduced and the conversation began with some sprightliness politics however was the subject on which our entertainer chiefly expiated for he asserted that liberty was at once his boast and his terror after the cloth was removed he asked me if i had seen the last monitor to which replying in the negative what nor the auditor i suppose cried he neither sir returned i that's strange very strange replied my entertainer now i read all the politics that come out the daily the public the ledger the chronicle the london evening the whitehall evening the seventeen magazines and the two reviews and though they hate each other i love them all liberty sir liberty is the briton's boast and by all my coal-mines in cornwall i reverence its guardians oh, then it is to be hoped cried i you reverence the king yes returned my entertainer when he does what we would have him but if he goes on as he has done of late i'll never trouble myself more with his matters i say nothing i think only i could have directed some things better i don't think there has been a sufficient number of advisers he should advise with every person willing to give him advice and then we should have things done in another guess manner i wish cried i that such intruding advisers were fixed in the pillory it should be the duty of honest men to assist the weaker side of our constitution that sacred power that has for some years been every day declining and losing its due share of influence in the state but these ignorant still continue the cry of liberty and if they have any weight basely throw it into the subsiding scale how cried one of the ladies do i live to see one so base so sordid as to be an enemy to liberty and a defender of tyrants liberty that sacred gift of heaven that glorious privilege of britons can it be possible cried our entertainer that there should be any found at present advocates for slavery any who are for meanly giving up the privileges of britons can any sir be so abject no sir replied i i am for liberty that attribute of gods glorious liberty that theme of modern declamation i would have all men kings i would be a king myself we have all naturally an equal right to the throne we are all originally equal this is my opinion and was once the opinion of the set of honest men who are called levellers they try to erect themselves into a community where all should be equally free but alas it would never answer for there were some among them stronger and some more cunning than others and these became masters of the rest for as sure as your groom rides your horses because he is a cunninger animal than they so surely will the animal that is cunninger or stronger than he sit upon his shoulders in turn 
since then it is entailed upon humanity to submit and some are born to command and others to obey the question is as there must be tyrants whether it is better to have them in the same house with us or in the same village or still farther off in the metropolis now sir for my own part as i naturally hate the face of a tyrant the farther off he is removed from me the better pleased i am the generality of mankind also are of my way of thinking and have unanimously created one king whose election at once diminishes the number of tyrants and puts tyranny at the greatest distance from the greatest number of people now the great who are tyrants themselves before the election of one tyrant are naturally averse to a power raised over them and whose weight must ever lean heaviest on the subordinate orders it is the interest of the great therefore to diminish kingly power as much as possible because whatever they take from that is naturally restored to themselves and all they have to do in the state is to undermine the single tyrant by which they resume their primeval authority now the state may be so circumstanced or its laws may be so disposed or its men of opulence so minded as all to conspire in carrying on this business of undermining monarchy for in the first place if the circumstances of our state be such as to favour the accumulation of wealth and to make the opulent still more rich this will increase their ambition an accumulation of wealth however must necessarily be the consequence when as at present more riches flow in from external commerce than arise from internal industry for external commerce can only be managed to advantage by the rich and they have also at the same time all the emoluments arising from internal industry so that the rich with us have two sources of wealth whereas the poor have but one for this reason wealth in all commercial states is found to accumulate and all such have hitherto in time become aristocratical again the very laws also of this country may contribute to the accumulation of wealth as when by their means the natural ties that bind the rich and poor together are broken and it is ordained that the rich shall only marry with the rich or when the learned are held unqualified to serve their country as counsellors merely from a defect of opulence and wealth is thus made the object of a wise man's ambition by these means i say and such means as these riches will accumulate now the possessor of accumulated wealth, when furnished with the necessaries and pleasures of life, has no other method to imply the superfluity of his fortune but in purchasing power, that is, differently speaking, in making dependence by purchasing the liberty of the needy or the venal, of men who are willing to bear the mortification of contiguous tyranny for bread. Thus each very opulent man generally gathers round him a circle of the poorest of the people and the polity abounding in accumulated wealth may be compared to a cartesian system each orb with a vortex of its own those however who are willing to move in a great man's vortex are only such as must be slaves the rabble of mankind whose souls and whose education are adapted to servitude and who know nothing of liberty except the name but there must still be a large number of the people without the sphere of the opulent man's influence, namely, that order of men which subsists between the very rich and the very rabble. Those men who are possessed of too large fortunes to submit to the neighbouring man in power, and yet are too poor to set up for tyranny themselves. In this middle order of mankind are generally to be found all the arts, wisdom and virtues of society. This order alone is known to be the true preserver of freedom and may be called the people now it may happen that this middle order of mankind may lose all its influence in a state and its voice in a manner drowned in that of the rabble 
for if the fortune sufficient for qualifying a person at present to give his voice in state affairs be ten times less than was judged sufficient for forming the constitution it is evident that greater numbers of the rabble will thus be introduced into the political system and they ever moving in the vortex of the great will follow where greatness shall direct in such a state therefore all that the middle order has left is to preserve the prerogative and privileges of the one principal governor with the most sacred circumspection for he divides the power of the rich and calls off the great from falling with tenfold weight on the middle order placed beneath them the middle order may be compared to a town of which the opulent are forming the siege and which the governor from without is hastening the relief while the besiegers are in dread of an enemy over them it is but natural to offer the townsmen the most specious terms to flatter them with sounds and amuse them with privileges but if they once defeat the governor from behind the walls of the town will be but a small defence to its inhabitants what they may then expect may be seen by turning our eyes to holland genoa or venice where the laws govern the poor and the rich govern the law i am then for and would die for monarchy sacred monarchy for if there be anything sacred amongst men it must be the anointed sovereign of his people and every diminution of his power in war or in peace is an infringement upon the real liberties of the subject the sounds of liberty patriotism and britons have already done much it is to be hoped that the true sons of freedom will prevent their ever doing more i have known many of those pretended champions for liberty in my time yet do i not remember one that was not in his heart and in his family a tyrant my warmth i found had lengthened this harangue beyond the rules of good breeding but the impatience of my entertainer who often strove to interrupt it could be restrained no longer what cried he then i have been all this time entertaining a jesuit in parson's clothes but by all the coals of cornwall out he shall pack if my name be wilkinson i now found i had gone too far and asked pardon for the warmth with which i had spoken pardon returned he in a fury i think such principles demand ten thousand pardons what give up liberty property and as the gazetteer says lie down and be saddled with wooden shoes sir i insist upon your marching out of this house immediately to prevent worse consequences sir i insist upon it i was going to repeat my remonstrances but just then we heard a footman's rap at the door and the two ladies cried out as sure as death this is our master and mistress come home it seems my entertainer was all this while only the butler who in his master's absence had a mind to cut a figure and be for a while the gentleman himself and to say the truth he talked politics as well as most country gentlemen do but nothing could now exceed my confusion upon seeing the gentleman and his lady enter nor was their surprise at finding such company and good cheer less than ours the gentleman cried the real master of the house to me and my companion my wife and i are your most humble servants but i protest this is so unexpected a favour that we almost sink under the obligation however unexpected our company might have been to them theirs i am sure was still more to us and i was struck dumb with the apprehensions of my own absurdity when whom should i next see enter the room but my dear miss arabella wilmot who was formerly designed to be married to my son george but whose match was broken off as already related as soon as she saw me she flew to my arms with the utmost joy my dear sir she cried to what happy accident is it that we owe so unexpected a visit i am sure my uncle and aunt will be in raptures when they find that they have the good dr primrose for their guest 
Upon hearing my name, the old gentleman and lady very politely stepped up and welcomed me with most cordial hospitality. Nor could they forbear smiling upon being informed of the nature of my present visit. But the unfortunate butler, whom they at first seemed disposed to turn away, was at my intercession forgiven. Mr. Arnold and his lady, to whom the house belonged, now insisted upon having the pleasure of my stay for some days, and as their niece, my charming pupil, whose mind in some measure had been formed under my own instructions, joined in their entreaties, I complied. That night I was shown to a magnificent chamber, and the next morning early Miss Wilmot desired to walk with me in the garden, which was decorated in the modern manner. After some time spent in pointing out the beauties of the place, she inquired with seeming unconcern when last I had heard from my son George. "'Alas, madam,' cried I, "'he has now been near three years absent without ever writing to his friends or me. Where he is I know not. Perhaps I shall never see him or happiness more.' "'No, my dear madam, we shall never more see such pleasing hours as were once spent by our fireside at Wakefield.' My little family are now dispersing very fast, and poverty has brought not only want, but infamy upon us. The good-natured girl let fall a tear at this account, but as I saw her possessed of too much sensibility, I forbore a more minute detail of our sufferings. It was, however, some consolation to me to find that time had made no alteration in her affections, and that she had rejected several matches that had been made her since our leaving her part of the country. She led me round all the extensive improvements of the place, pointing to the several walks and arbours, and at the same time catching from every object a hint for some new question relative to my son. In this manner we spent the afternoon, till the bell summoned us in to dinner, where we found the manager of the strolling company that I mentioned before, who was come to dispose of tickets to the fair penitent, which was to be acted that evening, the part of Horatio by a young gentleman who had never appeared on any stage. He seemed to be very warm in the praises of the new performer, and averred that he never saw any who bid so fair for excellence. Acting, he observed, was not learned in a day. But this gentleman, continued he, seems born to tread the stage. His voice, his figure and attitudes were all admirable. We caught him up accidentally in our journey down. This account in some measure excited our curiosity, and, at the entreaty of the ladies, I was prevailed upon to accompany them to the playhouse, which was no other than a barn. As the company with which I went was incontestably the chief of the place, we were received with the greatest respect, and placed in the front seat of the theatre, where we sat for some time with no small impatience to see Horatio make his appearance. The new performer advanced at last, and let parents think of my sensations by their own, when I found it was my unfortunate son. He was going to begin when, turning his eyes upon the audience, he perceived Miss Wilmot and me, and stood at once speechless and immovable. The actors behind the scenes, who ascribed this pause to his natural timidity, attempted to encourage him, but instead of going on, he burst into a flood of tears and retired off the stage. I don't know what were my feelings on this occasion, for they succeeded with too much rapidity for description. But I was soon awaked from this disagreeable reverie by Miss Wilmot, who, pale and with a trembling voice, desired me to conduct her back to her uncle's. When we got home, Mr. Arnold, who was as yet a stranger to our extraordinary behaviour, being informed that the new performer was my son, sent his coach and an invitation for him.
and as he persisted in his refusal to appear again on the stage the players put another in his place and we soon had him with us mr arnold gave him the kindest reception and i received him with my usual transport for i could never counterfeit false resentment miss wilmot's reception was mixed with seeming neglect and yet i could perceive she acted a studied part the tumult in her mind seemed not yet abated she said twenty giddy things that looked like joy and then laughed loud at her own want of meaning at intervals she would take a sly peep at the glass as if happy in the consciousness of unresisting beauty and would often ask questions without giving any manner of attention to the answers End of chapter nineteen